Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and today we are going to go to India and discuss the phenomenon that is the Indian economy. Many, many people believe, I remember people said, you know, the 19th century was the British century, the 20th century was the American century, the 21st century, people suggested, was the Chinese century, but maybe not. Maybe it's going to actually be the Indian century because India is growing incredibly quickly, coming up incredibly fast behind China. And maybe the biggest story of the next 50 years will be the Indian story. And of course, all that is crystallizing this weekend as the G20 meet in New Delhi under the tutelage of Mr. Modi, the Prime Minister of India. So if you ever wanted to see the shift in the world economic power, have a look this weekend. It is shifting and it's shifting to the extraordinary subcontinent of India. I'll just give you a quick statistic about colonialism because we're going to talk to an old friend of mine, Vikas Nath, about the Indian economy. When the British arrived in India, the Indian economy had, for the previous thousand years, constituted about 30% of global GDP. 30% global GDP. In fact, Pliny the Elder used to write complaining <laughs> about the fact that the Romans were doing too much trade with the Indians back then. And the Indians were basically given the Romans, the Romans had nothing to sell to the Indians because they were so sophisticated. So for all of economic history, India constituted 30% of global GDP until the British arrived when the British left in 1947. What was the Indian contribution to global GDP? 3%. Wow. They completely destroyed and looted the country. It's no surprise that the word loot in English is an Indian word, because that's exactly, to loot is an Indian word. Oh, I didn't know that. That's exactly what they did. So we're going to talk about that, John. How are things with you, boss? Well, you know me, I don't like to complain, but I've... (laughs) Bullshit. I've I've had a really, really bad dose of the lurgy all week. I've had Uh, a septic... Tons, tonsils, but I don't have tonsils because they were quipped out when I was uh, 17. But uh, In great Irish fashion, there's very few Irish people of our generation knocking around with tonsils. 
Yes, right. <laughs> we're always whipped out. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a tonsil grave somewhere, uh, but yeah, no, I've I've it just hit me out of the blue, and I was stuck in bed with big sore throat on me, feeling very very sorry for myself. But I did take the time to because uh, I have a big list of podcasts that I want to listen to. So, so one by one, some good ideas. <laughs> well, one by one, I was putting on the podcast and kept falling asleep because the the medicine I'm on is so strong. But one podcast series that I am in the middle of at the moment is one called, have you ever heard of the Lazarus Group? No. Podcast called The Lazarus Heist. Okay. And it's it's from BBC World Service, but of course it is. Your, your former home. There's nothing <laughs> they know that you didn't teach them. I know that. Exactly. Oh, yeah, totally. But The Lazarus, I just get, I won't get into it, but, but it's really interesting. This would be up your street. The Lazarus Group is a group of global internet hackers. And okay. apparently they are sponsored by or based in, not entirely sure, North Korea. And yeah. they do the work for... Like Kim, great friend uh, of the Kim podcast, Jong- North Korea. Great friend of Absolutely. the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> Here's a couple of things that they did. They first kind of came to prominence in 2014. When, do you remember, you know, Seth Rogen, the filmmaker, comedian I, filmmaker? And I, I know the name, but I haven't a clue what he even looks like. He made that movie called The Interview, which was all about him interviewing Kim Jong-un, but the CIA get him to assassinate him while he's interviewing. And that went out and uh, Kim heard about it, saw the movie, didn't like it. And he directed Lazarus' group onto Sony movies. Sony I remember film. that. I remember they hacked Sony. They hacked them. They shut them down. They stole all their scripts, their assets, all their digital assets. Amazing stuff. Fast forward a couple of years. The other thing they did, which I think was amazing, is they tried. They didn't fully succeed, but they tried to rob the Bangladesh Central Bank of their central funds, which was $1 billion, which was sitting in the New York Fed. Yeah, that makes sense. They ended up getting, I think it was 100 million siphoned off. That's amazing. But it's incredible. The, the whole story behind it, the sophistication, it's a fascinating listen. There's Don't a lot of detail in it as well. But go have a listen to that more, one. You should get sick more often, John. You should. You should get sick. It's funny you mentioned tonsils there. I was just thinking, right? <laughs> We're going to talk about India. And Indian yeah. tonsils reminds me, when I was a kid, I was about seven or eight, I got my tonsils out in the Adelaide Hospital. And, you know, they bring you into this place. It's kind of Mickey Mouse and things, and you're going to sleep, right? Yeah. And the doctor was the first time I ever saw an Indian person. I'd never seen an Indian before that. Oh, right. right. And the doctor who took my tonsils out had a big mirror on his head to look down my gob, <laughs> right? <laughs> About four years later, I said to my mum, on the site of my second Indian person, when I was about 12, I says, where's the mirror? <laughs> I thought all Indians came with mirrors strapped to their heads. The third eye. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Anyway. No, actually, actually, Mac, do you remember when I got my tonsils out at 17, I got them out in Monkstown Hospital, which is now a, uh, an apartment block. But do you remember you breaking into the hospital, come and see me at about midnight? <laughs> do you remember that? Yes. We were thanks. running around the corridor or something at about no. midnight. I remember that so well. I'm so, bored out of my head. And Mac are, um, Hey, how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) The only man who broke into Monkstown Hospital. Apologies, Monkstown Hospital. Apologies, but, you know, you had to knock on the door and if it opened, you had to go in. So from from tonsils 
to mirrors on people's heads, to breaking into John's room when I was 17. Very old to get your tonsils out at 17. Yes. Let us now talk to an old mate of mine, Vikas Nath, about all things Indian. Now, this week, there will be a G20 summit in India. And the world will be focusing on India. We've been talking about traveling around the world, looking at our different countries. But one of the most fascinating stories is the Indian economic story, which is amazing. Just to put it in context for you, in the last 25 years, size of the Indian economy, okay, imagine this, has expanded 13 times. So imagine that. It's, it's a phenomenal growth. That John's been in India. I've been there. It's an amazing country. And I can't think of a better man to hold my hand and tell me all about India than my old colleague, Vikas Nath, who you will know if you're a Kilkenoyx recidivist. He's there every year. Was the emerging market strategist in a bank that I worked for. We were actually a, a pair, a duo uh, in that bank. And uh, obviously, Vikas has a handle on what the hell is going on, explain India. But Vikas, first, first of all, good to see you. How are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, to introduce myself to your listeners, you know, the best way to do it is, Hello, my name is Ashok. How can I help you? Can I start with getting your account number? Obviously, my name is not Ashok. But this is how the India transformation story started. The 13x growth started by India, transform, taking an industry and changing it like no industry has been changed before. But we'll talk about it as you ask me questions, David. Well, I'm just going to, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about back office India, but back office India becomes front office very quickly. And that's where India is going. That, that's what people have to appreciate that, you know, you start in the back office, but very, very soon you're doing everything and you're doing everything better than everybody else. But I want to start, Vikas, because you and I have known each other for a long, long time. We've chatted about this. I'm going to start something bizarre, which is the trial of Roger Casement, mm -hmm. which is he's executed on the 3rd of August, 1916. The trial is in June of 1916. A couple of months after the Easter Rising here, Casement is being tried for treason. He is being advised to be defended by George Bernard Shaw, who said, I will write your speech. Casement said, no. Arthur Conan Doyle, probably the most famous writer at the time, also mm -hmm. contributed to his defense team. And the reason was the following, that he was representing an anti-colonial movement which was erupting in Ireland. Now, fascinatingly, fascinating, Nehru, the first leader of an independent India, was visiting his cousin who was studying in the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin in 1916. And he writes home to his father after the rising, watching the Caseman trial, and he says, these people know how to become independent. It won't be given to us. We have to take it. And it always fascinated me that Nero was in Ireland at the time. And the connection between Ireland and India, historically, constitutionally, politically, the new India, is really quite strong, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. So Nero, as you know, studied at Harrow and then at Cambridge. And he became, he was called to bar at law in England. So he was, he, was, he was a lawyer in England before going back to India soon after his visit to Ireland. And his time in Britain, it really had a huge impact on him. A, he was very well educated, etc. But more than that, he could see how free people lived. Uh, the Brits were free. They were the colonials, but they were free. Yeah. And he became a part of the establishment until he started seeing things like what happened in Ireland. He went back to India and joined the freedom movement over there, which was largely a peaceful freedom movement. Now, after India got its independence in 1947, 
Nehru became the first prime minister of India, and he was the prime minister of India until about 1964. And he was the guy who actually kept the democracy in India alive. A lot of countries became free after World War II, and the process continued until the 1960s. But very few of them were democracies. And one of the reasons why India is a democracy today is that Nehru really believed in democratic ideals, and he really nurtured the institutions that make India a fairly vibrant democracy even today, when many other countries who got independence at the same time were not democracies, especially if you look across Africa and parts of East Asia, or West Asia for that matter. So post-colonial, there was a fraternity of nations that were led by people who were about Nehru's age, who had fought for their independence, either peacefully or violently. And that fraternity was, they used to look upon the colonial masters and talk about how badly they'd been treated for the previous 50, 100, 200, 300 years. And that fraternity of brothers, of nations that that had been colonized, some of them joined the non-aligned movement, the Zambias, Indonesias, Yugoslavias of the world, they became leaders of the non-aligned movement. A lot of them went left-wing. Zambia did, Tanzania did, India did. Nehru was a socialist, really, and started a 45-year socialist experiment in India that did not work out. The same is true for almost every other post-colonial power that became socialist. So there were brothers not just being post-colonial, but also being socialists. And that was the strong link with Ireland. And India's link with Ireland goes really deep. A lot of India was, was conquered by a British general called Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, who was Irish. Was Irish. Yep. The Irish were teaching in a lot of Catholic schools that existed in India. You know, a lot of Jesuits, but, you know, we have friends and, you know, people who gave it in India who studied in these Catholic schools and still remember their Irish nuns and, and the priests from Ireland or teachers from Ireland. I was amazed by that, Vika. So just to tell you, Vika and I have been in India together a number of times, but we we were chatting away and the amount of people in India and also the amount of people in very significant positions in India who were educated by Irish nuns and Irish priests, I was I was blown away, but I was, it was phenomenal. You know, we were chatting away and they could quote this, they could quote that. And there was a real proximity and it's something that we don't really know about at home. Yeah, it's a, the Irish global influence just to the diaspora. You know, the fact that so many Irish people have taught people in, not just in India, but, you know, all over Southeast Asia, all over Africa, the Irish global impact is huge. And those countries, people in those countries feel very connected to, to Ireland because of that. Yeah, just one last thing on that connection. In 1947, when Nehru was celebrating the independence of India, I believe it was, was the 16th of August, 47? 15th of August, he, yeah. 15th of August. And he asked the Brits, could they celebrate or note this? And the Brits said, no, you can't do this in London. You have to do it in Birmingham. And the only foreign leader who turned up to celebrate the independence of India was Eamon de Valera. The only one. Yeah. yeah. So it's, just, yeah. it's an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary Real story. brothers. I tell you. And, and, then, and then let's go to India now, because I think the history is fascinating, the fact that the priests and nuns were there, the fact that casement, narrow, all that. But again, that's recent history. What is phenomenal now, and this is what has been noted this week at G20, is the fact that India is the coming power. Explain, let's say the last 30 years, what happened? Because Nehru, you said, and Indira Gandhi and the Congress party, very much socialists, India was going nowhere quickly. 
60s, 70s, up until the 80s. Tell me between the 90s and now what has happened to allow this country to, to explode in growth. So quick background, 30 second background. Nehru inherited a post-colonial economy. The post-colonial economy was largely run by, by private companies, British-owned by private companies. Nehru started a process of nationalization, and he kept nationalizing. His daughter, Indira Gandhi, who took over from a couple of years after he died, continued that process. And by about mid-1970s, India was a completely socialist country. It was a mixed economy. There were few private firms, which was a socialist country. And... Then it made the mistake of starting to borrow. So you'd remember in late 1980s, Brazil and Mexico both had huge foreign debt crises. And they were the most indebted, foreign indebted emerging market countries. India was a very close third. India had borrowed massively during the 1980s. 70s also, but massively during the 1980s. And India had to go to the IMF in 1991. And a part of the IMF program, while the Indian government never uses the word IMF, they say this was our own way of transforming and liberalizing India. They liberalized India in 1991. And they started taking away the socialist shackles. And capitalism, and Indians were good capitalists and good entrepreneurs. They started coming to the fore and they started new industries, etc. And this new industry that was coming around at that time was the IT industry the information technology industry. And two or three Indian firms started really making very rapid progress in that. But India's golden moment came when the dot-com crash happened in 1990s. Because during the dot-com bubble, what a lot of companies had done was invested huge amounts of money in creating international infrastructure for IT. So when the dot-com crash happened, Indian companies started buying these assets for pennies on the dollar. So the I didn't realize undersea, this. I didn't realize so this the undersea fiber optic network that had been laid between Asia and the US, both through Pacific and through Atlantic, was bought by Indian companies. Consequently, the cost of telephony just dropped. It dropped by like 90, 95% almost overnight. And then started this guy named Ashok or Sanjay or Rajiv, who started answering your phone calls. And, you know, we are sitting in early 2000s wondering what the hell is happening. And you mentioned brick. At about that time, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll go away a little bit, but I'll tie all of this together. Because this is why I love chatting to you. We're, we always go around so, the houses, but we always get there. So brick w- was launched as an investment concept by Jim O'Neill, who was the chief economist at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. And he launched it as an investment concept saying that, look, these are the four countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. South Africa was not a part of the original BRIC. These are the four countries on which we are putting a 50-year bet. This is what we should invest in. These are the four countries we should invest in. And Goldman Sachs Asset Management, they launched a fund called the BRICS Fund. As an investment idea, it was bogus. It didn't work. It never would have worked. But at that time, it really took the investment community by storm. And me, being an emerging markets guy, I was saying, all right, you know, Brazil makes sense. Huge exporter of, uh, of, of minerals. Massive agro-exporter, you know, yeah. one of the most efficient agro-exporters in the world. This makes sense. They should do well. China makes sense because by then it was proving out to be the factory of the world. Russia makes sense, you know, oil, lots of minerals, and also a massive agro-exporter, and also a country that was starting to come together in the post-Yeltsin era. Putin had just come in. And the first five years of Putin were not that bad. He looked yeah, like no, a guy absolutely. who was... Absolutely. Yeah. 
India's tech act life is so dumb. It's like, why is India in this grouping? Other than the fact it's got a billion people living in it. You know, it's got no natural resources. We Indians are not particularly strong and industrial. We're pretty lazy. You know, what is it that India has that can be its competitive advantage? Well, the competitive advantage that India had, and I'll take you to another story, which is your economics. We've always had in economics this concept of tradables versus non-tradables. Yep. Tradables, international tradables are goods, computers, VCRs, aeroplanes, cars, etc. You can make in one country, export it to another country. Services were always thought to be non-tradable. How mm-hmm. do you trade away a secretary, a typist, etc.? What India did was it made this non-tradable into a tradable through technology and by starting these back rooms, call centers, business process outsourcing, and eventually taking over a lot of the services that world uses to the point that India's service exports from a couple of billion dollars back at that time have now grown to $350 billion. That's extraordinary. So that's every back office, that's every tech support, that's all the stuff that people engage with India. And they've moved up the value chain. So the reason India fit in there is this remarkable story, absolutely remarkable story of taking a non-tradable and making it your tradable. That's India's story. And that's what India is going to continue to do. And be more, more and more successful at going into the future. So let's look at that. So you, you, you make services that were thought of as a local business. You make mm-hmm. it into an international business. And as I said at the mm-hmm. start, you start in the back office. And, and you know, mm-hmm. to a degree, Ireland started that in a similar sort of journey in the early 80s, but on a much smaller scale, obviously. But it was that idea that we were kind of the back office for Apple and we're the back office for, for, for Microsoft and whatever. And then gradually, gradually you become the front office as people yes. acquire more skills, more networks, education system changes. So let's look at India right now. Tell me about the demography and then tell me about the future. So about 1.4 billion people making India one of the most, the most populous country in the world. GDP of about 3.6 trillion in nominal terms, not in this PPP terms making it the, I think, the fifth largest economy in the world, about to overtake in the next two, three years, should overtake Japan and Germany, which are number three and number four economies in the world. So India will become the third largest economy after US and China. The future looks good. The reason it, economically, the reason it looks good is because India is slowly but steadily building infra, physical infrastructure, which it had completely ignored for the first 60, 70 years. You know, between the time you first went to India, David, back, I think, in about 10 years ago. About 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah. If you go to Jaipur today, the road from the airport into town is a six-lane highway. You know, back then, it was a two-lane road. It was a two-lane, yeah, yeah. And it was, and it was, a, and it was a fun drive. It was, yeah, you, you got into the minibus, and <laughs> you just said, don't look out. Just put your, look at your feet, and you'll get there, you know. What the Chinese did was massive investment in infrastructure, in the last 25 years, India is now doing that. India is starting to do that. You know, 10 years ago, 25% of India was not even connected to the national grid, electricity grid. That's now in place. You know, 25% of villages had no electricity. Every village has electricity now. Half the population, especially that lived in rural areas, had no toilets. They used to go out and use the fields. That doesn't happen anymore. And these are all transformations that have happened in the last five, 10 years. Currently, there's a massive emphasis on building infrastructure. The Indian government is spending 
$125 billion each year on building infrastructure, which in India, $125 billion goes a very, very long way because acquisition of land, et cetera, is cheaper than pretty much anywhere else in the world. So if this continues, if this process continues, India should become a reasonably good manufacturing base also, primarily because of a huge domestic market. You yeah. know, it doesn't make sense to assemble cars in Germany, Mercedes-Benzes, and send them over to India. It makes a lot more sense to make them in India and have your entire value chain in India because the demand is so high. The number of units you'll be pushing would be so big with a 1.4 billion population. So the future looks good. The couple of problems that I see happening in India is the government is still in a lot of businesses. There are lots of public sector companies. Most of the banking sector, most of the banking assets are run by the government. And that's problematic because you don't want government allocating capital. Yeah, A lot of industries, core industries, are run by government. And yes, there are private players that are coming in, but the government needs to get out of the business. Mr. Modi, the current prime minister, was elected on the basis of, I will make the government smaller. Unfortunately, he hasn't done that. It still is a very nationalist government that believes in the role of government in the economy. And that'll always be a problem for India. If India could throw off its public sector shackles and go as private sector as possible, India needs to get rich before it gets old. That's the challenge for the next 25 years. Yeah. China is getting old before it's become really rich. China's GDP per capita is the same as by Turkey, same as by Brazil. It's, it's, not, it's not very different from them, but it's getting old. We need yeah. to get rich before we get old. And we have a window of about 25 to 40 years to be able to do that. To get rich, India needs to expand 20-fold, 30-fold from where it is right now. Wow. So the challenge is still enormous. Chan- the challenge is enormous. But India has proven that it can grow 13-fold in 25, 30 years. You know, during the same period that India grew 13-fold, China grew more than 20-fold. So it can be done. It can be done. You know, South Korea did it in 30 years after the war. Yeah. I actually, yeah. the amazing thing with South Korea is South Korea is still, and we, people don't appreciate it, probably the most impressive economy in the world. They do yes. everything. They make everything. They've changed that place beyond recognition. Let me come back to this weekend. So there is the G20 summit. Mm -hmm. This is coming on the back of the BRICS loose arrangement, okay? I want to ask you Mm -hmm. about what you think of these things. G20, Xi is not going to travel to India. This has changed the whole dynamic. He's sending his his second in command. Is this still emblematic of the friction between China and India? Most commentators believe it is. Either India and China fought a war in 1962, which India lost seeds and territory to China, and they have been antagonistic ever since for the last 60 or so years. The main issue is the border between India and China. The, there was a treaty between British India and the government of Tibet in the 1880s, but that did not define the border very well. China invaded Tibet, you know, absorbed Tibet as a part of China, and that border still remains in dispute. You know, most of the border is above about 15,000 feet. No one lives there. Yeah, it's, it's snow and glaciers. It's in the Himalayas, in the, in the mountains. But every once in a while, there's a clash between the two forces. The good thing is that there's a treaty between the two countries not to use guns at the border. So when these clashes happened, and the last one happened about three, four years ago, soldiers were fighting each other with wooden clubs, with fists. I, I saw that. 
with knives. There were no guns fired. If guns had been fired, it would have escalated very, very, very rapidly. And for the last three, four years, they've been talking to de-escalate tension. You know, both sides are naughty. Yeah, and they're playing games and, yeah. But but it's 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 a frozen conflict and it's low level and it's not going anywhere. It is a frozen conflict, no pun intended. It's you know temperature up yep. there is always below zero. Yeah. Now just let's tell me about the BRICS. In the last couple of weeks, there's been lots of talk, lots of commentary about what this loose arrangement may be. We talked earlier on about the anti-colonial movement, which was again a loose sort of confederation of people who had suffered something similar, and that's what unified us. So as you said, mm-hmm. it went from Zambia. The ANC in South Africa, the Congress Party in India, the Fianna Fáil Party in Ireland—you know all the, all these—the the Fine Gael, the, the founding fathers, so to speak. Tell me, what do you make of this new BRICS arrangement? And are you skeptical? Are you enthusiastic? Can it go something? Is it an anti-NATO thing? Is it anti-American? What do you think it is? Well, firstly, I don't think much of it. I'm, I'm, I'm more than skeptical. It's an investment idea gone bad, seized by a few countries, and they're now trying to expand it. You know, they, they call it BRICS. They've just admitted four or five more members. I have no idea what these countries have in common. They have absolutely nothing in common. They keep talking about a BRICS currency. Ain't ever going to happen. I mean, we can go into it, but that's an entire podcast in itself. There's a BRICS bank that's been established, which is now led by Dilma Rousseff, who used to be the president between after Lula in, in Brazil. It's based yep. out of Shanghai. You know, it's done in about 10 years, it's done about $30 billion in lending. It lends out 3 to $4 billion or $5 billion a year, the amount that JP Morgan lends out in about half a day. And also to more than half the uh, world's population. Yes, but it's not, it's not a big bank. I know, I know. So, you know, I think it's, it's all talk and I don't think much will come off it. It'll fall apart. And is India taking it seriously or are you just, are the Indians just going along for the ride? Indians are going around along for the ride. They, they pay lip service to it. The bank's interesting because you might be able to get some cheap financing for Indian infrastructure. But beyond that, I think India's paying a lip service to it. So just before we go, because what does an India look like on your long-term forecast in, let's say, 2030? Because it's quite close, but it's sufficiently far away. So by 2030, India would be a top three economy. The GDP would have gone from about 3.6 trillion today to about five, maybe a little bit beyond that. If the infrastructure investment continues, it's manufacturing, the manufacturing side of India and the manufacturing export side of India would be exploding. The biggest advantage that India has is its people and its people that live outside of India. Interesting. Your prime minister, the vice president of the United States, the British prime minister, you know, the leader of Portugal, Costa, you know, he's from Goa, or his family's from Goa. The Indian diaspora makes a huge amount of difference. We forget the role of Chinese diaspora in China's growth. You know, investment from Taiwan, investment from Hong Kong, sure, etc. Absolutely, absolutely. And the impact of Indian diaspora on India's growth is going to be massive. Firstly, it sends back over a hundred billion dollars a year in remittances. Wow. Secondly, other than these leaders, if you look at companies. Indian diaspora has been phenomenal. I mean, Google, Microsoft, IBM, Adobe, Starbucks, you know, Novartis, SoftBank, Vision Fund, Diageo, all of these guys have, or have recently had Deutsche Bank, recently had CEOs who were born in India. Not, not Indian Americans or British Americans or German Americans. 
actually people born in India have gone over uh, as uh, with connections in India. You know, so as long as this diaspora is in place, they will keep investing in India. They will direct a lot of investment towards India because now India is responding by investing in itself also. And it's it's very difficult to figure out how this will play out. But I think it will play out really well and India will keep rising and probably will not get rich before it gets old, but it will be reasonably high income before it gets old 40, 50 years from now. I'm, 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 I'm very positive. I'm a bull. Brilliant. Listen, Fikas, we will leave it there. I will see you at Kiltonomics, as always. Yeah. We, we, we will use and abuse you. We'll have you in all sorts of panels and you'll go back feeling rejuvenated Abuse. on the Sunday night. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I have to say, talking to Vikas there. The India that he was describing was very different to the India that I saw back in, what was it, 95 or something like Absolutely. that? But, but it is interesting, like when he was talking about the Indian diaspora, they're exactly like the Irish diaspora, just like on steroids. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more of them, you know. And it's, 100 it's billion every year being sent back. <laughs> it's mad, it's mad. We just conclude on diasporas, John. I remember years and years ago being in Israel and an Israeli fellow mm-hmm. said to me, you know, what do you guys do with your diaspora? He said, I meet, I meet Irish people everywhere. He was a businessman. And he said, I meet Irish people everywhere. There's lawyers, there are investors, la, 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 la. He said, you're everywhere. You're like us. And then he says, you're not really like us. I said, how do you mean we're not like us? He says, you guys, you're like the Jews, but you're the Jews who booze. <laughs> <laughs> I thought as a description, it was pretty good. And by the way, we're going to come back to the BRICS and that whole idea of a non-aligned, different sort of cooperation amongst countries. We're going to go to Argentina next week, talk to Martin Lusteau about the Latin American angle on the BRICS. So we'll talk to you next week.